We are looking this evening at Judges chapter 13. Um, Pastor Barrett and I have been in this short series on uh, the shadows of the sun in the Old Testament. And um, as such, we are looking at different aspects of Old Covenant revelation, Old Testament revelation, uh, and those specific things that God has revealed that point to Christ, that show more of the fullness of Christ. One of the old writers, I believe it was uh, William Ames, perhaps I'm incorrect, but he said we need the whole of the Bible to get the whole of Christ. So that if I don't see Christ in Amos, I'm missing some part of the Lord Jesus that is essential to the good of my soul. And it's not always easy to know how to see the Lord Jesus in Scripture. Um, There's a famous saying by Spurgeon, I'd rather see him where he's not than miss him where he is. I kind of tend to that. At the same time, we want to see Jesus where he is specifically breathed out in Scripture, where, where the text um, by the Holy Spirit is very clearly um, teaching us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Judges 13, I believe we have one of those passages as we're going to consider tonight, uh, this account of Samson's mother and father and the appearance of the angel of the Lord, the Melech Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord who comes and um, pronounces the um, forthcoming birth of Samson and the things that are related to that, and then does something very mysterious, which we'll see at the end of this chapter, that I think will help us. So um, in order for you to pay attention to a chapter that has a lot of details and not to miss any of them, I would invite you to look here with me at Judges 13, beginning in verse 1. And again, Just like the devil's in the details, Christ is in the details. So we have to pay very close attention to the details of this chapter. Judges 13.1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you've sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? 
And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hand at our hands, or shown us these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanaim between Zoar and Ashtol. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it is very easy for us to be discouraged in dark times. It's easy for us to look at the moral collapse in the world around us, in our own society. It's easy for us to look at the times in which we live and to be very discouraged. I was having a conversation this week with a fellow PCA minister, and he said, I think very dark times are coming. I've had that conversation with many people. But one of the peculiar dangers that we face when we start to have that conversation and say those things is we can functionally slide into an unbelieving pessimism that, in a sense, says God cannot shine light into darkness. Now, there's a danger. We don't want to be naively optimistic, but we don't want to be pessimistic in an unbelieving sense. The book of Judges is in the Bible to keep us from being overly pessimistic. I believe that Judges is... Uh, one of the most, if not the most, neglected book in the Old Testament for its theology, its depth, its contours. Uh, it's, it's a magnificent book. Not many ministers preach through Judges. Uh, Judges finds its place in redemptive history right after Joshua. Joshua has brought Israel into the Promised Land. They have essentially uh, taken possession of the land. Uh, at the end of Joshua, it says that all the land that God had promised to Abraham had become Israel's that they had conquered the land. We call that the conquest. And then during this period, uh, it's as if the, the conquered land has conquered Israel. The land of Israel doesn't seem like the promised land. It seems more like Egypt, oppressing God's people. It's a, it's a period of great darkness. Uh, there is that line in this book, everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as you look at the, the pattern of this book, there is a spiral in which God's people sin, 
and then God judges them with an oppressing nation in the land, and they feel the bitterness of that oppression, and they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord graciously raises up a judge and delivers them, 12 judges in all, by the way, one from every tribe in this book, because God's going to deliver his people on the whole. Each judge was from a different tribe. Spiral downward, God delivers, he restores, the people do evil again. God brings an oppressing nation. The people feel the affliction. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge. He delivers his people. The judge dies. The people do wickedness. And yet there's also a sense where that spiral is going down and getting darker and darker and darker to the end of the book. And Samson is the last of the judges. Samson is the twelfth of the judges. There are, There is a huge percentage of this book after this chapter that doesn't deal directly with Samson after the, the account of Samson, but Samson is the final judge that God raises up. In another sense, Samuel, who crosses over, is the final judge, and their names even have sort of etymological similarities. Samson and Samuel have some similarities and quite a lot of differences, but he is the last of the judges, and God is raising him up at a time of incredible darkness, and he's going to do something incredibly wonderful at the announcement of the birth of this final judge. Now, I want us to consider three things tonight. First, I want us to consider gospel light in a time of darkness. And then I want us to consider the progress of revelation. And then I want us to consider a symbolic visitation. Gospel light in a time of darkness, the progress of revelation, and a symbolic visitation. Well, it is a time of darkness. Notice that first line. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That pattern has continued, but there is a difference. And I noted that you have to look at the details or you're going to miss the importance of this. What is different about this reiteration is that it's not followed by the feeling of affliction under the judgment of oppression. Notice, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years under the oppression of the Philistines in the promised land, and the people don't cry out over the oppression because they've become comfortable living in the darkness. They've become comfortable living with the Philistines ruling over them. Now, why is that important? Because at the moment when God's people start to feel comfortable with their sin and even the consequences of their sin is when God steps in to redeem them. He doesn't wait for them to cry out to him. You see, God saves you if you're saved in your sin. The only people God saves is sinners. And he doesn't save you because you come to him and clean yourself up. And because you do that, he saves you. He only comes in the darkness of depravity to save you. Jesus said, the well have no need of a physician, but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, people that think they're good, but sinners to repentance. And this, this account here, God is bringing light in a time of darkness. He is bringing a deliverer, even when the people aren't seeking salvation. Isn't that marvelous? There's an echo here, of course, to the Savior coming into the world at the beginning of his ministry. 
when Jesus is just starting his ministry in Matthew 4, uh, Matthew says that he was there fulfilling what Isaiah had said, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Did they look for that light? No. Were they hoping? Were they calling on the Lord for it? No. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You see, the Lord doesn't doesn't have to wait to bring light out of darkness. That's, That's good news, isn't it? Because if that wasn't true, we would all be in big trouble waiting for your reform to be enough for him to save you. It would never happen. Um, This is gospel light in a time of darkness. Notice also there is an intimation of the darkness by way of parallel with the couple to whom uh, the angel of the Lord comes. There is this man, Manoah, and his nameless wife. We don't know her name. All we know about her is that she's barren. And, And... In the Bible, especially in the book of Genesis through Ruth, there is a theological theme of barrenness. There is, there is a, a pattern. Um, in Genesis 11, remember, all the way through chapter 21, Sarah is barren. And then remember, uh, after she had Isaac, and then in Genesis 25, Rebecca, she, she marries Isaac, and, but then it's 20 years without a child. 20 years. Um, and then, remember, after having Jacob and Esau, then there's Rachel, and, and there's years upon years upon years that she doesn't have a child and, until she has Joseph, right? And then you come here, and here is, here, is, uh, here is Samson's mother, and she's barren, and that's no doubt an enormous burden on her. Because if you lived in the Old Covenant era and you were barren, not only was your future livelihood at stake in an agrarian society— but, but the seed promise that a woman would have a seed that would be the redeemer. There, there would not even be that hope that maybe God would raise up that son through me because I can't have a child. And yet it was always in the barrenness God was bringing the promise of the son to show that it wasn't by human effort. It's not by you having as many children as you can have that you get the blessing of God. It's by God doing the impossible, right? Sarah being past the age, doing the impossible. That's the gospel principle, light out of darkness. Barrenness, no doubt, had an analogy to the barrenness of the the wilderness of this world, fallenness of this world. What should have been fruitful is not fruitful. And and it, it gets picked up in the prophets to talk about the fruitlessness of the people of God, that when God's people are not bearing fruit, they are barren. They are like a wasteland. Um, and yet God uses that theme and picks that up seven times, I believe, seven women in the Old Testament especially, that he is, he is doing something marvelous in, and, and he, is, he is making fruitful what was unfruitful. He is bringing light out of darkness. It's a parable of sorts. Um, of course, there's language here when the, the angel gives the message to um, Samson's mother. The language is reminiscent, isn't it, of the language of Gabriel to Mary. You're going you're gonna to conceive. You're going to have a son. 
That's intentional. You're meant to read that and think, that sounds strikingly <laughs> like what is said to the mother of the Savior. You see, that's not, that's not arbitrary. God is already laying down these hints of gospel light out of darkness. Um, well, I want us to consider, secondly, the progress of revelation in the message that is brought. Notice that uh, the angel says, he gives those instructions about the Nazarite vows, and since Samson himself cannot keep it, his mother will have to keep it for him. That's out of Numbers chapter 6, remember. Um, There, God gave uh, a law that was for a special group of people that he would call. It was a law of consecration. The the word Nazarite comes from Nazir, to consecrate, to separate. It was not meant for all the people of God. Um, God doesn't want all the men in the church to grow their hair out, stop drinking wine, and never touch a dead body. That was for a certain group of people. My best friend, I I don't think he's right, but my best friend sometimes jokes and says, when God consecrates a man or a woman playing off of the Nazarite vow, he said, he makes sure that uh, that man's fundamentalist friends are offended because he has long hair. His partying friends are offended because he can't drink with them, and he can't go to a funeral, so he offends everybody else. So he's completely cut off. There is a sense where he is going to be completely separate in the progress of revelation god is is going to do something special with samson Uh, he's different than the other judges in fact we don't even hear about his strength when we think about samson we think about the strength of samson we think about this extraordinary power that god gives him um i had a pastor once who said he liked to envision samson uh like woody allen because everybody was shocked by his strength. He wasn't a big, bulky bodybuilder. (laughs) He had a supernatural strength that God gave him. But what is talked about at his birth is not his strength or any of his marvelous feats, but that he is to be separate to the Lord. Uh, Matthew Henry says, in this way, Samson is typifying the one who was himself to be wholly harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners. Though Jesus never took a Nazarite vow, he was essentially the true Nazarite. He was going to be separate. God would not only separate him among the people, he would separate him from the people to be the deliverer of the people. Notice that everything in the text is moving to that. Um, Notice that Notice the end of verse 5. After giving Samson's mother the instructions, he says about the son, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, now you have to think carefully. He doesn't say he will save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He says he will begin to. Ultimately, it will be David who finishes the destruction of the Philistines. What what Samson will do at the end of his life, you know this, he'll pull down the temple of Dagon after his eyes have been gouged out, after he's been made to do servile grinding of grain and, and becoming a mockery to the Philistines. He'll pull down that temple. He'll kill potentially thousands and thousands of Philistines, including hundreds of Philistine lords, 
what he is doing is he is preparing the way for David to fulfill and complete the task. Well, the question is, why, why didn't God just have Samson fulfill the task? It seems like it would have been more expedient, right? Sometimes I think we don't like the Old Testament because it takes time to read. We don't like things that take time. Um, Matthew Henry puts it this way, God chooses to carry on the work gradually by several hands. One lays the foundation of a good work, another builds on it, perhaps a third brings forth the top stone. See, we we don't like the idea that um, we can't see it all at once or have it all at once. I mean, I feel that in ministry. You want to accomplish more than you can. That's not how God works. God does things in his time. He does them progressively. He's also intimating that Samson is not the one. If he says he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines, he's saying he is not the ultimate deliverer. There's another. And we'll learn it's not David. It'll be the son of David. Those are, those are in the text, intentionally. Um, God does things progressively so that we would wait on him. Listen to this. Um, Matthew Henry again says, this is intimated that the oppression of the Philistines should last long, for Israel's deliverance from it should not so much as begin, not one step be taken toward it, till this child who is now unborn should have grown up to a capacity of beginning it. Think about that. He's saying, even in this prediction, God's saying, you're not even going to begin to have deliverance from the Philistines until this child who's not even born will come to a place where he can start to deliver and he's not going to ultimately deliver you. Now remember, the Philistines are representative of Satan's kingdom. All the nations that oppress Israel are representatives of the the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, Satan is behind them. Israel is typical seed of the woman. God is is saying, I'm going to bring a son. I'm going to supernaturally bring a son. He's going to be set apart to me, and ultimately he is going to conquer the kingdom of Satan. Um, This too is pointing to the Lord Jesus. Now, there are applications we can make. Every one of God's people is to be holy to the Lord. Every one of us is to be consecrated to the Lord. Every one of us is to pursue holiness. But in redemptive history, this has a unique, a unique place to teach us something about how God is saving and the way God works in delivering. Now, I want us to consider, lastly and most significantly, the symbolic visitation. There is this, uh, we, in our English translations, we call it the, the angel of the Lord. Um, that, that's probably an unhelpful Uh, linguistic translation for us because when we think of the word angel, our minds automatically go to a spirit being that is not divine and not human, that's stronger than men, so much so that when you see one, you fall down as as in dead, but if you try to worship one, he rebukes you and tells you to worship God. That's, That's how we tend to think of angels. But the Hebrew word is melech, It's the same word from which Malachi is named over. Malachi means my messenger. The Melech Yahweh is the messenger of the Lord. It is, as one old writer put it, God 
on a prophetic mission. God on a prophetic mission. I like that. Um, where it is sometimes confusing, and there's been lots of debate about the angel of the Lord in church history, and not everyone has agreed, and not everyone's going to agree with what I'm going to say, although I think they're terribly wrong. Um, I absolutely believe this is a, a theophany, a visible appearance of God, and particularly of the Logos, the second person of the Godhead, a pre-incarnation, as it were, in a different body. Um, I think when you take the biblical data, especially here, but elsewhere, remember Jacob wrestles with a being just like this being, and, and he, he's said to wrestle with God. He doesn't say, I wrestled with a messenger of God. He, he says he's seen God face to face in Genesis 32, and, and there's similarities there. There are loads of similarities. Jacob asks the one he wrestles with, the man, this, this messenger, what is your name, twice, and he won't tell him. He renames him Israel. And it's almost identical to what we have here with Samson's mother and Manoah, his father, and the father asking, what is your name? And, and he won't answer him. What's the point of that? Well, if, if this is God um, in a visible appearance, um, I think the point is he wants, he wants his people to take him at his word and to trust in him. He doesn't tell them his name because he wants them to trust in him by faith alone. He wants them to take him at his word. That seems to be what the text is indicating. Manoah will actually ask the angel for more details. What should we do? How should we raise this one? And the angel won't. He'll, he essentially says, just do what I already told your wife. It's, it's sort of like when the Melech Yahweh comes to Sarah and, and comes to Abraham and he he gives the details, and why did Sarah laugh? And this is the Lord. He knows. He knows it all. And, and, the, and the purpose is he wants his people to take him at his word. He comes, he comes down to the very place where his people are at these special moments in redemptive history. And he wants them to take him at his word. Um, Gerhardus Voss puts it this way, the angel, the messenger, was uncreated, the eternal logos. But the visible, visible form in which he revealed himself was created. The logos was not personally united with it as he was with the human nature he later assumed. Um, there's another interesting thing that I think helps us understand who this is. When Manoah asks the messenger of the Lord, what his name is, he says, why do you ask my name seeing it as wonderful? The word in the Hebrew carries the idea of supernatural. Um, the only other time I know that it's used in the Old Testament, and I think we're meant to do this, an old writer, Robert Hawker, does this, one of the only ones I found, surprisingly, is in Isaiah 9-6, as we come up on a focus on the incarnation of Christ and that great prophecy, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be Wonderful. Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Um, I think this is the same one. The angel of the Lord will become the promised son. Isn't that awesome? He's predicting the birth 
of a promised son who will be a type of Christ and he will ultimately become the promised son whose name is Wonderful. Now, there's more. Very quickly, um, Manoah and his wife are grateful. They, they want to make a meal for this one. They don't know who it is yet. He's still veiled to them. It's almost like the two on the road to Emmaus. Here Jesus is walking with them, and they, don't, they can't. He appears in some other form. I don't know what that means, but they can't see him. They can't discern him. They still don't know who he is. They're like, well, let us make you a meal. I mean, this is great news. You've given us a lot to mull over. Can we make a meal? And he's like, if you make a meal, I'm not eating it. But here's what you can do. You can sacrifice to the Lord and make an offering to him. And so Manoah and his wife sacrifice a burnt offering. Now, what does that intimate? That intimates that Manoah and his wife are sinners who need a sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. There's nothing, this is a godly couple in Israel in a very dark time, maybe one of the only godly couples, and yet they're not so godly that they don't need a sacrifice for their sins. Remember the burnt offering, as Pastor Barrett mentioned, the fire consuming it is the wrath of God that we deserve, consuming something that is representing you, you. You're the bull on the altar being consumed by the fire because of sin. I am. Um, They're acknowledging by this act of faith, they're acknowledging they need a savior. Um, Now here's the most amazing thing in this. Notice verse 19. Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. That's not incidental. His name is wonderful. Manoah offers this goat with the grain to the one who works wonders. And while the fire is going up, the Melek Yahweh goes into the fire and into heaven. Now, almost every writer I've read says that intimates that God accepted the offering. No. That intimates that God will be the offering. That intimates that God himself would put himself in the flame of the wrath of God and he would ascend to heaven that way and that points you to the cross. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, the Melech Yahweh, the eternal son, was going up in the sacrifice in the flame of the wrath of God. There's a denomination that is probably almost entirely apostate, and they have a cross with a flame around it. And I love the logo because it captures this. It's, it's, actually, it's, actually, um, it's actually the most appropriate image to capture what this is capturing. Isn't that amazing? If this is the sun... And he's going up in the sacrifice. He's saying the way for him to ascend to glory and the way for you to be accepted is for him to go that way. And that's the only way. Now, very briefly, the response to all this. Manoah is afraid. His wife is believing. 
Um, you see here, actually, just as an aside, how godly couples can help each other. When one spouse falters, the other can be there. Here, Manoah's wife is actually helping her husband understand better gospel truth. Isn't that marvelous? Notice, notice that Manoah is, uh, he knows that it's the angel of the Lord, and he says, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. He felt as though God was bringing him to a point of death that there's no way God is going to accept me even after God has just shown him the way of acceptance. Isn't that crazy? And notice that, that no sooner does Manoah say that, his wife says to him, verse 23, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. Here she's saying to her husband, believe the gospel. If God has, has given his son for you, why would he not deliver you from the wrath to come? Think of the implications for this. Um, in marriage, in relationships, a believer struggling with sin, and, and he or she feels as though they're undone and they're, they're going to die, and they're going to perish. And, and notice what we learn from Manoah's wife. If God had meant to kill us, why would he have accepted the burnt offering? Look to the cross. That's what she says. She says, look to the cross, essentially. And, and look to what God is doing, lovingly accepting the offering of our hand and announcing these things to us. And then there's the fulfillment as a result of all that happened. And the Lord blessed Samson and prepared him for his ministry. Now, there is so much here. Um, I just want to leave you with a couple thoughts tonight. First, um, when we think about the darkness of our society, the darkness of the world, and it is a dark and evil place, we are to have hope that the covenant-keeping God is going to fulfill his promises in redeeming a people out of every tongue and tribe and nation and language, that not one of the elect's going to be lost, that God has already has already accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. And that means we can go forward hoping and praying that he will bring light out of darkness in his church, through his church in the world. We should have hope for that, no matter how dark the world gets. Secondly, I want to just encourage you to realize that God does things in his own time. When you grow impatient, and you wonder why the Lord's not answering prayers for this family member or for that, just know, the Lord does things in his own time. I mean, my parents were praying for me when I was 15 years old and rebelling, and God saved me at 24. That must have felt like a very long time for them. Nine long years for them. Um, God does things in his own time. And then finally, I just encourage you with understanding the symbolism of the visitation of the angel of the Lord is to, is to focus your eyes on Christ. That's, that's the point. Isn't it interesting? Samson's almost not even in focus at the announcement of his birth. This mysterious, divine being who goes up in the flame of the sacrifice and ascends to heaven is the focus. And I think what we're to take away from that is that he is to be your focus all the time.
That's why the writer of Hebrews says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I hope that you'll be encouraged to keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wondrous chapter. We thank you, Lord, that you have breathed out such wondrous things and you have taught us such wondrous things. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the glorious gospel truth that you reveal in your word and that you embody and fulfill in your person and in your saving work. Would you please make us to see more clearly the centrality of your sacrifice and what it means for us that we are accepted that God is for us, that we are forgiven and cleansed, and that we are secure in your blessing. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would work that in us this evening by your spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen.